there's no feeling quite like a video game flow state when the world melts away and you can just go and go and go. There's no punchline, I just think that's cool. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week we're taking an unexpected detour to talk about the fabulous Octopath Traveler 2 and what it tells us about JRPGs and video game storytelling. Pick your starting character and let's get into it. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Schreier. Hello. 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 Hello, everybody. Hello, my friends. Welcome, Welcome back, back for another episode of Triple Click. For our first episode of March 2023. Yeah. We are here. We've made it to March. Mm-hmm. We did it's it. It's almost spring. I wrote it on my calendar. That's how badly I want it. I want you wrote spring, spring to like yeah. you put the date of yeah, spring yeah, yeah. in your calendar. <laughs> March 20th. Nice. Can't wait. March 20th. Okay. It's funny because like here in New York, it's been the mildest winter we've uh, I can remember. We had a, a blizzard time. today and then it rained, which is worst case mm. scenario. Welcome to WeatherPod. We're back to hey, man. About the weather. On brand. Hey, look, I, <laughs> if we're going to talk about weather, I got to say it snowed like eight inches here in Portland or something. And it has been a total winter wonderland slash mm-hmm, disaster mm-hmm. over the weekend. A lot of places closed down. A lot of a uh, lot of yeah, ice on the road. That's that's the situation here. It's gonna snow again for the next few days. Mm. So I'm just aside from today, it. it's been <laughs> the mildest winter. Is my point. So it almost feels like it's already. Well, spring. you can come over anytime. You want to build a snowman? We got yeah, we got it. We got the stuff for <laughs> can it. Can you sing? Can you sing that song? We got a me? whole song that we could sing about that if we want to. Yeah, I would like to hear that. Jason, do you remember the song about that that was about destiny where I was like, do you want to do a raid, man? Or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh and I wound God. up writing all the lyrics of the Extremely whole song. Good. Extremely kind of good. appropriate. We're recording this on the day that there is a new huge Destiny expansion coming out that I don't think any of us is going to play. Yeah, Maddie, Kirk, Kirk Messagery is like, I kind of want to play it. I was like, I resist the what this episode's about? Just a hard pivot to us talking about Lightfall? Should we talk about that? Are Maybe we? it's like Maybe. it's like we just describe like a new brand of heroin that comes yeah. out every few months, and we're like, should no, we get really, back into it? Really it? Guys, what do you it think? <laughs> heroin comes in brands, right? Is that the, is that anything? Well, I've got this new <laughs> monitor on my PC, and Destiny looks really good in ultra widescreen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, anyways, we're a listener supported <laughs> show. You support our gaming habit. <laughs> However healthy or unhealthy that may be from week it's to week. It's healthy now. We're healthy. It is very healthy. We're very healthy lowercase g gamers here at Triple Click. We appreciate your support. And if you want to support us making this show, well, you can do so by becoming a Maximum Fun member at MaximumFun.org slash join. There are no ads on this show, except, I guess, for the promos we run for other Max Fun shows. But you don't have to listen to us talk about, I don't know, mattresses or therapy apps or whatever. Um, that's that's more of a thing you'll hear on other shows, not this one, because we're listener-supported. <laughs> so uh, MaximumFun.org slash join is where you can do that. And another way that you can support our show, we have, we're going to be doing something kind of fun with this in the near future, but if you like TripleClick, if you've listened to TripleClick for a while and you have, you know, some thoughts on why, like why you like the show that you would like to share and maybe have be shared on the show. Mm-hmm. Well, we would love for you to share that with us. So you can send emails to memberstories at MaximumFun.org. You can also leave us a voicemail at a phone number that will be down in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, you might you might get your uh, 
get your triple click tail told on the show at a future date. <laughs> triple so, click tales. Is this part of the tales a... series or is yes, it not yes, canon with yes. that? Tales or? of triple click. <laughs> tales of triple click. So anyways, uh, there's the info for that. It's out of the show notes and, um, you know, no pressure or anything, no big deal. But if you want to share a story, we would welcome it. All right, let's get on to the, uh, to the meat of this episode. Jason, take us away. So today we're talking about JRPG storytelling and mechanics and mysteries, but really, I just want to talk about Octopath Traveler 2, which is a Jason game I've been punches through the thin veneer and yeah. raving about for uh, the past couple of weeks. So this game... I would like to say, this is a, a game that Jason called the Elden Ring of JRPGs and also possibly Game of the Year in the mm, same mm-hmm, newsletter mm-hmm. that I read from him. Interesting. Well, actually, I guess I you called call it House of House the, of the year, year. That's true. Um, that's true. So uh, uh, Octopath Traveler 2 is a sequel to a game from 2018 that I did not really like love all that much that was the type mm-hmm. of game that like a lot of reviewers fell for because of the aesthetics and the production fell values for. which were great um <laughs> He wow. meant, like, fell in love with, not fell for the Fell ruse. in love with. <laughs> okay, okay, for, okay. Like, I, thought, I thought we were really coming out hot here. No, but no, 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 no. They I fell see, for they it fell as in, in they were it. enamored yeah. of it. The suckers. <laughs> they, they, they got uh, taken in by its wiles. It, did, it does have aesthetic wiles. <laughs> they, uh, a lot of reviewers fell for that game's production values, but structurally, inform- uh, it was kind of a mess. It was formulaic. It was grindy. It was monotonous. Octopath Traveler 2 fixes all those problems and, and more. And um, it's just a fantastic game for reasons that we will get into soon. But first, before we even talk about it, I want to introduce a new taxonomy. Oh, man. I yes. I believe. Finally. It's been a minute. It's, it's we're overdue for a new taxonomy. Kirk and Maddie, I, I have a thesis to share with you, too. I believe that all video games can be summed up as either one of two things. They are either action or adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Gameplay yes. story. There we go. They can either be flow games or thought games, is the way that I like to put mm, it. Mm-hmm. I like um, they can also, oh, most games or, or many games also really take uh, parts of them are one and parts of them are the other. Mm-hmm. And sure. a flow by of flow course. game, I am, of course, talking about the kind of uh, instinctive, action y kind of flow state that a game will put you in, whether you're just kind of sliding tiles in threes or jumping over mushroom uh, Goombas in Super Mario Brothers or, I don't know, hack and slashing in God of War. And of course, Mm -hmm. by thought, I mean the actual decision making and giving things thought, stepping back and saying, hey, I want to think about this for a second, whether that's I don't know, um, trying to solve puzzles and Professor Mm -hmm. Layton Mm -hmm. or making up strategies and tactics ogre, games that make you step back and think, picking what to do next in civilization. And obviously a lot of games, probably most games, um, mix the two and have different parts that are flow state, different parts that are thought state. Um, And I think JRPGs specifically tend to be more about flow state. A lot of kind of turn-based battles systems, even though they ostensibly would require you to have some strategy, most of the time you're just kind of like going through the motions, either mashing Mm -hmm. the fight button or just kind of like if you're on a boss, maybe mashing the fight button and then also healing occasionally. But really you're just going into the flow of it. And that can be enjoyable to an extent. But also a lot of the time in JRPGs you're also just kind of like 
going through the motions. You're walking to a town. You're going up to people, talking to people. You're not really thinking a lot as you do it. You're just kind of going through the flow. And again, that is a certain type of gameplay. I don't think it's a problem. But I found personally over the course of my gaming career, so to speak, that I really like games that have an emphasis emphasis on the thought or or put kind of at least blend the thought in with the flow to the point where you are really you really feel like you are making decisions constantly and the games that i enjoy most with the exception of threes tend to have thought in some capacity when i think about recent games for example um maybe uh uh uh, the case of the Golden Idol, that's entirely thought. Return of the Upper Din, that's entirely thought. Mm-hmm. Outer Wilds, that's a lot of flow because the exploration itself is flow, but the game itself and trying to figure out the story and the mysteries and stuff are all thought. Elden Ring, that's a really good example of a mix of flow yeah, and thought. Yeah, I was thinking in that of that as my next the, example. The action itself is flow, um, but the story stuff and the mysteries and the exploration, you have to spend a lot of time thinking Uh, in order to piece everything together. So I bring all this up to say that one of the reasons, really the main reason that I am so in love with Octopath Traveler 2 is that it blends those two together in a really smart way in that thought is prioritized over everything. You are constantly making decisions and having to think about how to proceed. So when you're in combat... um, you always have to think because of this unique break system that we'll get into in a little bit that makes you just be making decisions constantly. And then when you're outside of combat, instead of, as in most JRPGs, where you might just go and explore a town and talk to everybody and then move on to the next town, you actually have to do a lot of thinking because you run into all these side quests that, yes, Kirk, I called the Elden Ring of JRPGs in a recent <laughs> newsletter because these side quests give you kind of a couple of breadcrumbs and then expect you to follow the trail to find... Uh, Hansel and Gretel or whatever to take the analogy to the next level there. Um, they really, they create these little mysteries that you have to think about and, and they're really fun in that way. So I think that, that kind of using that as a taxonomy to analyze games like this helps me at least understand why I enjoy a game like this so much because it feels like it's constantly just Uh, requiring me to use my brain and I find that with games that are flow I kind of bounce off of them a little bit more quickly Um, certainly I'm not spending 60 hours sinking into a game that is entirely flow the way I have with Octopath Traveler 2 Um, so yeah I'm curious to hear well so Kirk you've played a little bit of it I'm curious to hear what you think of the game first of all from what you played and whether you think my thesis holds up yeah I'm interested in your thesis I mean I've played uh, four or five hours of the game I like it I think it's really cool Um, and we can talk some about why but I actually yeah I want to focus a little on this flow versus thought thing it's almost like two different gears that you get into when you're playing a game like you've acknowledged right that most games aren't entirely one thing or the other and that is true for most of these taxonomies that we've done right there's uh, there's overlap some games kind of lean more in one direction than the other and then some extreme examples are like really far in one way or the other but it is like how much a game shifts between those two things and how elegantly it does can be a big part of the enjoyment of the game. Elden Ring is a good example where you can play that as just a flow game. I think there are people who just 
they just flow, man. You just get in the zone and you're just playing and there's kind of nothing impeding you from just going to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and exploring and kind of, you know, it, you might get kind of stuck for a second because it's a hard fight or you're lost, but you don't actually have to engage too much with the puzzles or the mysteries for most of the game. Yeah, although the equipment, there's some thought involved in your strategizing in terms of equipment oh, well, and items and skill. Right, but you know what I mean? Like, by and large, it's a pretty flow state kind of a yeah, game. You just 100%. play it and yes. go. And yes. then there's this layer on top of it that you can shift into at any time and that the game kind of urges you into where suddenly you really are in a very thoughtful, you know, uh, mindset, which can then be really fun. With Octopath 2... I don't know. I, I'm definitely in kind of a flow state with the game a lot. I think that it kind of flows along, and that's for a couple of reasons. It's partly the way that combat works, and it's partly the way that the writing works. So this is a game where you, like the first game, there are eight main characters who all feel like they would ordinarily be side characters in a role-playing game. And the way I think of this game, what I think is such a cool idea about the first one and is executed much better in this one, is that it's like they removed the silent protagonist from the JRPG or just from the RPG. And they said, what if instead of having this kind of empty vessel of a character who everybody orbits for the story, we just removed them entirely and then had the whole story just be about the interesting side characters that everyone always says are the best characters and the best stories anyways. And then the story was just a series of loyalty quests that gradually overlap more and more and more and become kind of this tapestry rather than the loyalty quest being the best part of what's otherwise a just chosen one narrative or whatever in an RPG. So that's the structure of this game. And the first game I didn't love either. I played three or four of the act ones and then just kind of went and played something else. And that was because a lot of the characters were pretty tropey or very tropey actually and uninteresting. And what I'm finding in this game is it's not that the characters in the stories aren't tropey. They're really tropey still. They're I don't actually have to think too much about what's going to happen because each one is this little, you know, serving like individual serving of a little story where it's like, oh, I am the son of the king and the king is old and my war loving brother is really powerful and leads the army. And the king says he wants me to take over because I understand peace. But then my brother betrays both of us and kills the king and he takes the kingdom. It's like, okay. <laughs> like, or another one is like, I, I have been framed for the murder of my family and now I'm in prison and I need to get vengeance on the, you know, friend of mine who betrayed me. Like they're all like that so far. I know there are there are kind of variations and twists, but they're well enough written or interesting enough. They subvert the tropes enough that I'm like enjoying them. But actually, I'm kind of just flowing along. And I think that's partly because of where I'm at in the story. And I'm curious how this compares to where you are, Jason, since you're near the end of the game. But it is like this: these early goings of this game are actually very flow-like because it's just you know, learning the the ropes of a JRPG combat system and then just going through these, like, pretty familiar, pretty cliched stories that are still enjoyable enough for me to like and, of course, look and sound absolutely gorgeous, and so it's just very pleasant to play. So, okay, I want to just make one more point on thought, and then I want to throw it to you, Maddie. I know you haven't played Octopath Traveler, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this dichotomy and JRPG storytelling in general. But first, Kirk, I I just want to say, so when I think about thought on a macro level in a game, I think another part of it is kind of like mapping out your, or kind of even figuring out what to do, um, what you're going to do, your kind of mental task list. Okay, I'm going to go over here and then I'm going to do this quest and it'll lead me over there and then I'm going to do that and it'll take me there. 
And I think that there's kind of structurally, there's a difference in a game that has this big flashing marker system where it tells you exactly where to go and what to do every time you highlight a quest, which feels like more of a flowy approach because you don't have to give it any thought versus an Elden Ring. And so when you say, I, I kind of disagree with, with the the concept that you could play Elden Ring just as a flow, because I think even kind of putting together in your head, like, oh, Blade said that a falling star hit over there, but I don't know exactly where it is. So I'm going to chalk that up to my mental to-do list or write it in my, my diary that I'm keeping next to me or whatever. And then I'm going to, I have to take care of this other thing. And then I want to go back to the, to the uh, round table. Yeah. I wasn't speaking in absolutes. It's not Tetris effect. Like I mm -hmm. understand that you do have to think it's just a pretty flowy game as a general experience. yeah, I, I just mean I, that nature. And we've talked about checkpoints in Elden Ring or markers in Elden Ring and how uh, appealing a game is without them. That to me has always just been more appealing to have to actually give it some thought to what you're doing next and, and put it together. And anyway, yeah. Octopath 2 has that in spades. So I might, I mean, I've picked up the game and played for two hours without following any of like the main quest lines and just being like, okay, so I have to bring this person using my path actions, which are these character actions you can take outside of combat like guiding someone or dueling someone or stealing from someone an NPC um, so I'm going to use a path action because this woman says that her she was engaged to marry someone but has never even met him and wants to meet him so I'm going to go find him and oh while I'm there I can also go explore this secret dungeon that I just found but haven't had a chance to visit yet and then I'm going to go do that and then this and then that and that sort of kind of planning out is part of the thought experience in in my head and i think that applies to octopath 2 especially as you get further and further in the game the combat we can talk about in a bit but yeah maddie i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this taxonomy and also and how it applies to jrpgs and, and stuff like that yeah i really like this taxonomy although it is kind of breaking my brain because i never thought about games this way so that's great i'm going to spend the next few weeks <laughs> that's my trying job. to decipher that's my goal here. whether yeah. metroid prime is mostly flow because I feel like as I'm mm. playing it, I'm also thinking about what I did last. That's a and good yet, question. I would have said mm. um, at the beginning of your description, it's entirely flow because I'm just I'm running, jumping, ball mode. I'm I'm flowing all over the place here, but I'm always analyzing. I'm reading text logs. I'm thinking the whole time. And there's even puzzles as to where the Chosalore is. This is a Metroid Prime episode, right? But yeah, no, no, let, let's say, <laughs> can we stay on Metroid Prime for a second? Like the. <laughs> So I've been playing through Metroid Prime as well and also continuing to play Dead Space Remake. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely an interesting difference along the lines of this yes. sort of dichotomy is that in Dead Space, it's a lot more flow because I'm going and doing things like I'm going and now getting whatever. <laughs> you're I on discrete tasks that you can barely accomplish stuff. due to the high octane environment you're in. Yes. Well, it's always like, well, the plants are going to kill us all. So you need to go deal with the plants or like, oh, we're, <laughs> the engines are broken. So you need to restart the engine. But in that game, you just press a button and a little laser pointer tells you where to go. Mm -hmm. And then you just follow the line and you're going to fight some monsters and press a button. And then some people will tell you to go somewhere else. Where in Metroid Prime, it is a lot more thinky yes. because you have to shift gears a lot out of that flow state because you can't just run around because you mm -hmm. a lot of times don't know where you're supposed to be going <laughs> yeah. and have to remember where you were and yeah, yep. what this unlocks, yep. etc. And that was one of my favorite things about Elden Ring was that shift between flow and thought 
And I agree with you, Jason, that the fact that it blends those two things is what's so exciting about it, because I really like the thought parts. I mean, we've talked about Case of the Golden Idol a lot, and I agree that's almost entirely thought. But to have that switch between how great FromSoft Combat feels and then also the big picture of what does Ronnie really want me to do? That's so weird. What is really going on here is Mm. extremely pleasurable as a game experience. But also um, on the thought tip and the JRPG tip, I know it's a bit of a topic change, but I I do want to hear more from you two about why you think sometimes really trope-laden storytelling works and why sometimes it doesn't. Because that's yeah. also fascinating. Yeah, well, so real quick, Maddie, I think on Metroid Prime, one of the thought aspects of it, one of the biggest thought aspects of it is having to remember what the thing, like discovering a new item and then remembering yep. all the times where you you yep. run into things that you can now unlock and just going back and backtracking. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Kirk, I know you have thoughts on video game JRPG tropes specifically and when they work and when they don't work. Do you have a, a kind of theory there on what, what makes them work <sighs> If you need a thought starter, one of my comparison points was Persona 5, which I would describe as having some very stereotypical high schoolers in it and yet still being extremely pleasurable in the way that Gossip Girl can be pleasurable or Riverdale can be pleasurable. Yeah, I don't have a finalized way of thinking about this, but Octopath 2 has been making me think about it in particular because the game is so fashioned as this nostalgia object, despite being a new game telling a new story, it's designed to look like pixel art, like look like a sort of Super Nintendo era, like a 16-bit JRPG. That's what the characters look like. But the look of this world, for anyone who hasn't seen it, is three-dimensional. There's really strong depth of field. So you'll be focused on a character in the foreground and the you know town behind them will be out of focus. Like there's a camera sitting down in a little diorama. Mm. A diorama is the best way to put it. That's what it feels like. There are modern lighting effects, so you'll be carrying a you know a torch and it sort of lights all of these little things. Everything looks so beautiful. And of course, the music is really, really good in this game, especially the nighttime field music in any of the different regions. It's always this woman singing and like, I'll probably play some of it behind me right now, just because like really, really beautiful. I mean, I'll just, I'm honestly playing the game 50% because th- that music, I just want to hear the next beautiful track. Hi everyone, Kirk here as I edit the episode. I just wanted to credit the composer on Octopath Traveler 2. It's Yasunori Nishiki, who is also the composer on the first game. And while I didn't love the first game, I did love the music and I love the music for Octopath Traveler 2. Just like this nighttime Enya stuff, man. It's so good. Okay, back to the episode. So there's this kind of nostalgia play going on with this game that I don't mind at all and that I have a hard time differentiating from the nostalgia that I feel when I play, say, Final Fantasy VI or Suikoden II, the games that we've played through together, Mm -hmm. because it's weird. It's like back then in the late 90s, people were just making games, and I don't think they were made to evoke nostalgia, even though 
they are often very sort of uh, emotional and nostalgic stories. There's a lot of sepia-toned flashback. There's a lot of melodrama. But they were modern stories being told at the time. Now, when I play those games, I feel nostalgic for just, you know, the past. It's like watching an old movie. If you watch a 70s movie, it just makes you feel nostalgic because everyone's talking on corded phones. This game makes me feel that same thing. And I allow for all of these cliches because they all play a role in that feeling and that really works for me. I just am, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, of course, it's this really, you know, it's this one story about succession in a kingdom that I've heard a million times, but this whole thing is kind of a throwback. It all feels like a cliche, so it's fine. And I let that go. And then Maddie, you mentioned Persona, which is interesting because Persona isn't that. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's set in the modern day. It's all about the internet. It's about modern kids. But it is about high school, and mm-hmm. so it makes me kind of nostalgic for being a student. So I guess my only the only thought I'm coming up with right now anyways is that there's some element of nostalgia in almost every JRPG I've played, whether you're actually playing as high school kids or you're playing a game that reminds you of what it was like when you were in high school. <laughs> and I know that can't be the case because not everyone was in high school when they played these uh-huh. games. Not everyone is my age or, you know, our, our age range. Mm-hmm. And yet it's still there. It's still something that I notice and think about. There's something to a party being similar to a clique, though. And when was the last time you were in a clique of five people? Maybe mm. it was high school. I don't mm-hmm. know. I can kind I'm of in the triple clique there. of three people. Well, that triple clique. Well, yeah, of that's three, just people three of us, right here. But... Um, yeah. So, Kirk, I just I don't think. Well, I'm curious to hear your thoughts as you play more, but I don't think that the main appeal of this game is those main stories. Like, the stories are fine, whatever. The characters are fun. But really, the appeal of this game, at least for me, is being in this world that just feels so vivid and rich with detail and beautiful and full of, like, these NPCs. That The the thing I've enjoyed most about this game is just going around and using the path actions that let you see NPC descriptions and just seeing how all these people... because everybody has if you go around and you use that path action on npcs in any town everybody has their own little personality and like twist or subversion or trope and some of them connect to others i mean one of the highlights of this game for me was just getting to this new town and there's a castle and you go into the town and there's this um uh princess standing outside and you talk to her and she says something boring whatever it doesn't really matter but then you check her description by using your path actions and it's like this princess, it's basically, this is me paraphrasing, but this princess has been surrounded by suitors for the past year, but she isn't interested in any of them. Uh, if only people knew that she was secretly in love with her childhood friend. And then you find the childhood friend. And again, this is all entirely just completely like random NPC detail. It's nothing to do with the main story. You find the childhood friend and it turns out it's a woman. And mm-hmm. oh, hey, that's this cool little detail that you just find in the game. And that sort of thing is everywhere. They're like probably two dozen towns in this game and each of them is full of NPCs with their own just like rich backstories and details. And then on top of that, you'll just find secrets like like hidden all throughout the world map another one and i'm sorry if this is spoiling things for people but i just can't resist like sharing all this stuff um you can find uh you can find this guy just randomly in the map this little guy who is like um a soldier and his his description he's described like his npc name is described as like amateur story or soldier or training soldier or something and hikari who's one of your characters has this ability to duel with people and when you talk to this guy he says i need to train 
and I wish someone would train with me. And so you use Hikari and you duel with him. And then after the duel, um, you can kind of cycle in this game. You just press a button to cycle between day and night. So after the duel, he's knocked out on the floor. But then if you cycle a day and then you go back to him, you'll see that he's uh, become, he's no longer like a trainee soldier. Now he's like a, a, a training soldier or something like that. And if you try to duel him, he'll be a little bit stronger. And you can keep doing this. And he just gets stronger and stronger as you duel him more and more because he's like training. And again, this is just some random NPC. It has nothing to do with the main plot. And eventually you can get him so strong that he just kicks your ass. And then now he's arrogant soldier. And he'll be like, uh, the, ma- the trainee has become the master now. I no longer need you. Um, <laughs> and it's just so funny. These little details are just so funny and rich and just really make the game... Um, the game's world feel just like um, this incredible place that you want to spend all this time in exploring. Yeah. I mean, based on what I've played, I'm just reacting to what I've played. You know, I think there's, it makes me think some thoughts about JRPG storytelling, but it, to kind of explain the structure of this game, the way that it seems to work based on what you're saying and, and what I've played, it starts out with a mostly undirected series of first acts that you can do as you build your party. And, there is even some you know, like thinking, I suppose, to use this breakdown in the beginning where you choose your starting character and then afterward, you're actually it's not clear what you're supposed to do. You're just sort of at the open world and you can do whatever. And then you realize, oh, if I just look at the map, it says where all the other characters are. So I guess I just go get them and then you have to go get them. So there is already some you know open-endedness. It's not telling you, okay, now go get the next person. They're right here. You could just get on a ferry and go across the ocean to the other side of the map and get a completely different person if mm-hmm. they look cooler. And then as you play, you get more and more characters in your party. And then each character has a unique ability. And you, would, I know you explained this sort of, but to make it really clear to people, there are eight characters, Octopath, and each one has... This unique ability, sometimes they change from day to night, and you can change it from they day always to night. Do. So they all have different abilities. Okay, they all have different abilities at day and night. And but it's some like, of the abilities are similar, so they all do a bunch of core functions, and some of them cross over with one another. Yes. So there's crossover, and there's basically there's an ability that lets you learn things about a person, an ability that lets you get people to come with you, an ability that lets you steal things from someone or abilities from someone. Those are, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And... This guy Oswald, for example, has he's the one with the Count of Monte Cristo back backstory where he's been wrongly imprisoned. Yeah, there's even some of that in his act one, where his ability is that he can like study someone and learn about them if they're, you know, close enough to his level. And so you're in this prison and you have to learn about people. And it's very fun because you'll talk to a guy and he seems kind of shifty, and then you study him and you realize, oh, okay, this guy's actually a rat and he's mm-hmm. been turning people into the guards forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um and that's really cool. So then out in the world, you can I can imagine how as you build a party, they become this multi-pronged puzzle solving uh, sort of apparatus that I can adjust and move through the world. And while, yeah, you can go do their stories and learn what's going on with them narratively, the fun of the game, and it sounds like this is what I'm very excited about with this game, is that there are all of these little hidden puzzles that you can solve all these different ways with your cool little toolkit, depending on which characters you have mm-hmm. and how creative you can be with their their individual actions. The thing I want to throw out there, and this is for all three of us since we've all played this game, is 
This is true to the lineage of a lot of the JRPGs that we've played, especially Suikoden 2, right? I'm not like imagining this, that a lot of these opaque mysteries, these things where you go talk to someone with a certain person in your party, and then you come back later and there's something has changed and there are all these little hidden stories. Isn't this kind of very similar to what was going on in Suikoden 2? Yeah, to some extent. Suikoden 2, I would argue, is more opaque and there's a lot more of like you kind of need to have a walkthrough. Really, all of this, I mean, a lot of this lineage can be traced back to the NES slash like Atari slash arcade days back when they wanted you to buy the strategy guide and like call up Nintendo Power Hotline to to, to get your to get your clues for what to do next. That's why a lot of that stuff had esoteric secrets. I think this is a lot more fair in its side quests, although there's some that I still haven't figured out or some little bits and pieces of the game that I still am trying to piece together. Um, and that's why, I mean, you you mocked or gently mocked earlier when I called this the Elden Rings of JRPGs, but it's really similar in a lot of ways. And I think the the secrecy, the I, I only laugh because it's just a little bit Skyrim with guns, like well, calling course, anything I mean, the Elden Ring of anything you just have makes to, me laugh. I mean, I hope you saw some of the irony in in that uh, in the Substack newsletter headline. Um, but I also I want to talk about the combat because I think the combat is really like that's what you spend. A a lot of your time in this game doing is fighting battles and i think it's really worth bringing up because it's just so much better than your average turn-based system and kirk i think um it kind of it gets more complicated more complicated and more interesting the more you play as as is often the case of these kinds of games so the way the combat works is it's turn-based um you see your character's turn order on the top of the screen um and every enemy you encounter has uh weaknesses right and so when you meet a new enemy you'll see on the bottom of their kind of uh, avatar, whatever, the picture of them, you'll see a number and then you'll see a bunch of kind of question marks. And the question marks each represent a different weapon type or element type. So an enemy might be weak to spears and fire or whatever it is. And the number, if you every time you hit them with one of those weak points, that number goes down. And so if it starts at five, you hit them five times with different swords um, and that's a weakness, then they go to zero. And when it hits zero, they're called broken and they take more damage and they're stunned for a turn so they can't do anything on that turn and basically they're just weaker um and so as you play more and more there's also this whole boost system where you can like give your uh, characters extra uh power or extra hits using a kind of a special currency called bonus points or boost points that go up every turn um and so as you go this gets a lot more elaborate and complicated because eventually you'll get to bosses where you really have to start thinking and doing less of the kind of easy flow state, like, okay, I'll just smash this random encounter with my dagger a bunch of times and that'll be it. Um, and Kirk, it's worth noting that in the chapter ones, most of the enemies you face are weak to whatever your character yeah, has. That's so it's obvious, a little, yeah. little more straightforward. Um, so when you get to bosses, you have to spend a lot more time strategizing and thinking, okay, I'm going to break this boss on that turn. So I want to have my characters ready to go to do as much damage as possible on that turn or else the boss will kick my ass on the following turn. So how am I going to do that? And oftentimes, if you're doing it right, you have to plan like two, three turns ahead, like full rounds ahead in order to optimize that damage dealing. And there's a lot of cool ways you can do that with items and skills. You can equip each of your characters with like a sub job that gives them a suite of new skills. Um, 
And so, and you can combine them in really cool ways. And then all of your characters get these like limit breaks that they can do as well that also add cool new powers. Like one of the limit breaks, I think the dancer's limit break is you can turn any ability from just targeting one person to targeting all of the people. So all the enemies are all of your party members. And you can really break the game with some of the combinations here, which again is very reminiscent of Elden Ring. And with like that perfect combination of kind of like flow and thought, it winds up being that bosses are super super fun and, and really fun to just break apart. I got my Hikari, the warrior character, dealing like 30,000 damage per hit when a boss is stunned, which is just super fun. It's just incredibly fun to break the game and know you did it because you were just planning ahead or like doing doing smart combinations or whatever it is. So I think that's worth noting as well with this game specifically that that's like a big part of the appeal. Um, Maddie, have you played any JRPGs whose combat systems that you've actually enjoyed? And if so, what, what <laughs> made you enjoy such a trick question. Uh, well, I mean... <laughs> Kingdom Hearts doesn't count. I know. Well, see, the reason why Kingdom Hearts would count for me is because of the same reason that I like Final Fantasy VII Remake and why I uh, will be sad if, if part two of that gets delayed and I'm still really looking forward to it is because anything turn-based... I don't know what it is. I just feel I have trouble getting immersed. Let's put it that way. I, mm. I like I like some real time combat to be happening in order for me to really get into it. Uh, otherwise, I feel like I'm I don't know. I can't I can't stay focused on it. Uh, so that that change is huge for me. But I will say, like, I got pretty far in Persona 5 because the way that that game is set up, it still manages to feel like action matters and it's always happening and i think some of that is sound design and some of that is also For the sure. stacking of certain kinds of skills which is not on the level of what you're describing jason where you need to plan ahead that far but there's still a little bit of planning ahead whereby you're like okay this person has certain kinds of attacks if they do this then the next character in line can do that to build upon the existing attack and that's very delightful. I, I would yeah, prefer you might it not like be turn-based. Active Fast Traveler too. I think if I might. Into, it is very Persona-like uh, in that sense, in the weakness sense. I think so. Although I think I would still probably never like the turn-based combat. The part of what you're describing that excites me is the Elden Ring storytelling of it all, which I really enjoy. And and I think I would like reading the item descriptions and, and discovering stories and having that be its own reward. Like exploring is its own reward. I mean, I'm a fan of Metroid after all, and also Elden Ring. So that part excites me, even if the turn-based part doesn't necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree about Persona 5 and that the combat, it's so punchy. The animations and the sound design are so killer. Yep. And it's it automates some things that Octopath Traveler 2 purposefully de-automates, and it moves a little bit faster. But they're actually really interesting comparisons because, Jason, when you begin describing the combat system in Octopath Traveler 2, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, how would I be hearing this description if I hadn't played the game and had just played Persona? And it mm -hmm. starts out, you know, you're like, well, you know, each enemy has different weaknesses and you want to hit the weaknesses because then you break them if you hit the weaknesses. And that's mm -hmm. all. I mean, that is just Persona. Yeah, but there it's are super these similar. But there are these crucial differences in that Octopath Traveler 2 makes you take, I think, time into consideration in it on a different level, which is pretty cool because in Persona, you break an enemy and they're down. And then if you break all the enemies, they're all down. And then you just get to do a ton of damage to them and then they're back up, right? That's yep, the kind yep. of 
the exactly. sort of fulcrum around which all the combat cycles is this get them all down, do that big funny attack where they all jump on them and do a big cloud of melee, and then they come <laughs> out and then you keep going. Or you beat them with, with that attack. Where in Octopath, what's cool is you hit them with at their weak spot. A lot of times enemies don't immediately go down, unless it's, like you said, at the very beginning when they're just showing you how it works. But even where I am, like a little later on, you have to hit them a few times and it yeah, shows you, you how many times you have down. to hit them. Mm-hmm. So it gives you that information. So you're looking at the number thinking, okay, like Throne A, for example, who's the thief character, her ult, like, which charges pretty fast, lets her do two attacks. So she can do two attacks and that lowers them even more. And then you can also do the, uh, whatever it's called, the charge up thing where you get multiple attacks on your turn. The boosting, So yeah. mm-hmm. Boosting, right. So you can like advance, you can bank attacks or you can hold your attacks back you can block for a turn to build up a boost for next turn with the goal of getting them into the broken states so you can do maximum damage it reminds me a little bit of bravely default too i guess Mm -hmm. because that that game also right same developers um that game also had some of that sort of bank your moves and then you have a debt that you have to wait and pay off i do really like that i think it's a like smart way to add a layer of complexity to a system that works basically like Persona's system, which is mm-hmm. kind of an if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of situation. Like it's a good fundamental system. And I like how they've how they've adjusted it. Yeah. I will also say that one of the exceptions to my turn based rule is Fire Emblem, because that also mm. involves spacing and also yeah. it doesn't necessarily have a time limit on a fight, but you can only take so many hits before you die. So it always kind of feels like the clock is ticking in a in a Fire Emblem scenario. And and I would guess also a tactics ogre haven't played it, but it's a similar turn based scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that for some reason still always makes me feel the fun kind of stressed out. And it kind of sounds to me like Octopath is borrowing from some of that in that you're planning multiple attacks ahead of time. And in Fire Emblem Engage, you also still have the rock, paper, scissors of it all where you're like certain attacks are good against certain kinds of enemies, but I have to make Mm -hmm. sure the right enemies are in the right spot to do those attacks. That's very fun to me. It's it's the thought, <laughs> the thought above the flow that really helps. It really is. I mean, it's like these games all are adding thought layers on top of the flow, where Persona 5 really is pretty flow heavy. You have to think sometimes for bosses, but a lot of it is just the music's going, you're just yep. fighting dudes, and it really is just like a flow. Yeah, I think, so that's that's a cogent point. I think with Persona 5, you're not really thinking a lot. I mean, occasionally you might have to decide, yeah. like, do I want to attack or heal with mm-hmm. this turn? Right. But like most... Most of the time, you're not really giving it that much thought. You're just kind of selecting the weak point, and that's the end of it. In Octopath, especially with the boss battles, there's a lot more because as the bosses get more challenging and more elaborate, they present really interesting scenarios. Some of them might have weak points locked off until you defeat like some of their minions. Others might start casting a special spell or something that you know is going to wipe your party or hurt your party, and so you have to get them knocked out in order to stop it. And so you have to kind of look at the turn order and be like, okay, Mm -hmm. they're coming up in two turns. How can I do this? Do I have to start going into my items? Do I have to use all my boost points right now to knock them out before the attack goes or mm-hmm. do I wait and risk that they're gonna like mm-hmm. say okay I, my character's hit points are pretty high maybe I'll just suck it up and take the attack in anyway yeah. and there's a lot of decision like making that, that goes into it that sounds a lot it. more like a fire emblem to me in a good yeah, way yeah it's just there's no there's no spatial position right of course but, yeah. but to throw another game in there this is also a lot like Marvel's Midnight Suns yes oh mm. my god you're so right so especially the later battles in that game once you start taking on the super tough enemies that can regenerate health yes. there are so many times where I wound up in those situations where the fight is starting and I'm like, okay, I got to burn every 
everything down just to get these two enemies off the yep. board. Mm-hmm. How am I going to do it? And then you yeah. wind up in this much more kind of min maxi strategic thinking layer mm-hmm. than just, all right, whatever, I'll attack the first few guys and we'll see what happens. Which is, yeah, yeah really pleasant, especially when a game can sort of manage that gear shift like it can pull you from one mode of thinking to the other Mm -hmm. effectively which all of these games i would say do pretty well oh yeah yeah it's really smart and it's like it's constantly presenting you with these decisions and i think that's just what has made it so interesting for me and said it so good for me is like it actually saying hey you have to think about what you're going to do next you can't just go through the motions the way you would in most turn-based games or most Mm -hmm. jrpg combat Mm -hmm. systems all right you're kind of selling me on it Maybe yeah, it's it. really good. It's a pretty cool that, game. I do I do really like what I've played so far. I'm really You'd really it. like the music. You'd really like oh, the, well, the little descriptions. I think you might be tempted. Maddie, you might be tempted to skip all the cutscenes of the main character stories. Because like the main <laughs> character stories, uh, that's not why I'm playing the game. I think they're fine. Some are better I mean, than I others. I skip a lot of Fire Emblem Engage cutscenes. <laughs> yeah. so, it's it's you know. a head and shoulders above Fire Emblem Engage for what it's worth. <laughs> Storytelling wise. <laughs> So just to give you just to give you a taste of it. So yes, Kirk Kirk kind of summed up a couple of them. I picked my starting character was Throne, who's this thief who like lives in the back alleys of this like New York like city. Um, by the way, the the game it's, it's not set in like a medieval fantasy world. It's set in like a turn of the eighteen of the nineteenth century like industrial revolution mm-hmm. type world with like a wild west section, like a samurai section, and like a their deserts and snowy fields set and the scholars. And <laughs> it really is. It's, it's like set in West. They're different areas. It is Westworld. It's set in Westworld. Um, So Throne, her story is that she's like part of this gang of murderous thieves who like go on assassination missions and stuff. And she decides to break free of them by killing the people who run the organization and like winds up on this quest to to find them and and hunt them down. And there's some cool stuff there. Um, Again, some of the stories are better than others. There's one who's just like, it's so funny in comparison. One whose story is entirely, I want to go be a cool a big dancer in the big city i want to be a popular dancer and that's you might think that her story goes places but it doesn't that's the entirety of her story <laughs> is that she wants to be a dancer they um, really do feel like jrpg side characters which is nice because do. even if a story is kind of whatever you play through it pretty quick and then you're out yeah. to the world and exploring and doing the, the fun stuff other, another thing i wanted to note is two big things that i think make the most significant impact when it comes to changes from the first game so one is that in the first game it never really felt like the characters were connected because each of their stories you just see them solo and some of the stories it didn't really make sense why like the 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 villainous thief was hanging out with this like pious cleric type and it didn't really work um, for various reasons. It felt like eight people on an independent adventures and like it made no sense that they were traveling together. In this game, first of all, none of them are really either too good or too bad. So it kind of makes sense that they're they're hanging out together. They're all more in the kind of ranging from chaotic neutral to like uh, to uh, like, I don't know, chaotic evil, like a little Lawful bit of evil, evil here yeah. and there. Um, there's nobody who's like super great or anything except maybe Hikari. But um, more importantly, you there's a lot of a lot more party banter. It's called where you like press the plus button on your switch and you'll see an optional little skit when they talk to each other. And this time, instead of just being random little skits that happen every once in a while, they happen a lot more often and they happen during the story mission. So you can see whoever's traveling with your party actually comment on what's going on, which really adds a lot of flavor to it. So in the story cutscenes, you still just see your one character character but in the optional party banter you see other people talking to them and being like oh how did you feel about this oh you look like you're struggling because 
of this and they actually talk about what's happening. So it feels like they're traveling together. Um, a little thing that I like is also just that in combat, they'll just be like, nice job, Hikari. Yeah. Way to go, yeah, Throne. Yeah. And it's uh-huh. it's very heavy handed, but actually it it sort it of helps. works. Yeah, <laughs> it, it helps. helps. Yeah, it makes it mm-hmm. feel like they all know each other. And the other, just real quick, the other really important thing is that in the first game, and this was the worst part, this is what really just made me not like that game very much, um, or at least not love it. Um, every single chapter followed the same formula. You get to a town, some cutscenes play, you use your path action, you go through a dungeon, and then there's a boss, and that's it. And that happened 31 times. There was one exception. <laughs> there are four chapters. I can't believe characters. you played that whole game, man. Well, you're, I was reviewing it. Yeah, I had to finish you're the, it. You're the JRPG man, too. Um, and you have to so grind. Fun. I haven't had to grind once in this game, and I'm basically almost done, which is nice. Um, so yeah, so it was just so formulaic. This game switches it up. Like Some chapters, there's no bosses. Some chapters, there's no dungeons. Some chapters like do things differently, have two dungeons. Sometimes mm-hmm. chapters branch. So it might be like with Throne, for example, after chapter one, there's like mother's root and father's root because you're going mm-hmm. to find mother and father. And so and go find them places. with your knife. Yeah. <laughs> and so exactly. And so it just feels it's it's kind of some of the changes are subtle and small, but it just makes it feel so much better than the first game because you're not just following the same formula over and Mm -hmm. over again. And you don't know what to expect. There's a ton of variety, a ton of interesting stuff that happens. And yeah, man, this game, I could just go on about this game forever because I haven't been this hooked on a game since probably Elden Ring. And really, it's one of the best JRPGs maybe I've ever played. Like, I love it. It's just fantastic house um, of the year jason schreier yeah mm. i i love it i think it's awesome and i think yeah maddie i think even you would get a lot out of it i mean best jrpg jason's ever played that means i might think it's okay yeah exactly. it's a bold statement <laughs> all right why don't we uh we've given this enough thought so why don't we flow our way to uh the next segment we're gonna take a little break and then it's time for one more thing If you have trouble falling asleep, try sleeping with celebrities. Tell me about your view of, of succulents. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan. It's a different kind of sleep podcast. There are some real benefits to parking illegally. Featuring remarkable guests and unremarkable topics. There's two Orlando airports. From the creator of Depression Mode with John Moe, it's Sleeping with Celebrities. Every week on Maximum Fun. Nighty night, sleepyheads. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and Frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say Bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy brothers every week? For my brother, my brother, and me. All right, Kirk, Maddie, it's time for one more thing. Maddie, take us away. Okay, I saw RoboCop for the first time. Pretty good for movie. For the first time. <laughs> it's so good, isn't I it? So, I'm so excited you watched it. I love RoboCop. 
Man, yeah. it's a good movie. Pretty good. This was a really big hole in my personal canon, and I feel very proud to have finally made it happen. Uh, this is there's um, nothing Kirk enjoys more than like when people first watch classic '80s movies. I know. I there's nothing I like more. So if I get to do Fair. it myself, I also True. it's like I'm completing my own sense of joy. It's one of the and great joys of life. For yeah, sure. yeah. I have some more classic '80s movies that I'm going to try to complete. Uh, we'll see if I talk about them on the show or not. If they're if nice. they're as good as Robocop, I might. Uh, TBD. But um, Robocop, uh, classic sci-fi movie. Paul Verhoeven directed this, and I'm a big fan of his. I was really into Starship Troopers as a teenager. Still kind of mm-hmm. my go-to example of satire, if people want to yeah. understand what it is. And uh, I just... I have so much nostalgia for it, especially as like a teenager growing up during the war on terror, the forever war. And we're just, I mean, we all were surrounded by propaganda for that as teenagers or, you know, 20 somethings and watching Starship Troopers in that exact time period for me would just hit so right. And I think I would have really dug Robocop then. I still liked it a lot as an adult already knew what the deal would be in terms of the militarization of the police force depiction of this uh, futuristic version of Detroit and just the depiction of the future generally as being corporate controlled and like these, this private corporation controlling the police force um, and turning a somewhat ordinary cocky cop into a cyborg terrifying cyborg cop who you also feel pretty sorry for which yeah. I didn't actually expect. I kind of went in thinking Robocop would be a bad guy, um, but he's not quite a bad guy. He's a sympathetic figure, and I thought that worked pretty well. I, I thought it was pretty fascinating. Um, and I did want to shout out uh, one of the simplest filmic techniques I've ever seen, but it really worked for me. So if anybody's rewatching it and they want to think about this, uh, welcome to uh, subtlety with all the weight of a <laughs> huge axe landing on your head. Um, the moment at the beginning when Murphy, who's the lead cop, human cop at the beginning, gets killed by a bunch of criminals, um, the shot position and the music is very similar to the moment significantly later in the movie when all the cops turn on him and they're all shooting at him and there's so many moments where somebody is shooting at someone just like a comedic number of times like it's just really i don't Mm -hmm. know it feels like a paul verhoeven thing to be making violence comedic almost like because of how extreme and absurd it is and that marriage of those two moments really worked for me where i was like oh wow like the cops are now presented as the same mm-hmm. as the criminals. Again, you know, axe-shaped <laughs> subtlety here, but it still really worked for me, and uh, yeah. I dug it. I liked it a lot. Read some good articles about RoboCop and satire afterwards. Really like Paul Verhoeven's stuff, and uh, I recommend it. Also, um, I do not subscribe to Amazon Prime. I don't pay for it, but you can hey. watch it on there for free with ads. So even if oh. you don't want to give Jeff Bezos any money... You can still watch RoboCop. I'm sure I'm still paying him somehow. Yeah, but you are whatever. giving him money by watching. I don't care, ads, but yes. Jason. Better than nothing. Look, I have Amazon Prime. It's I, impossible. I mean, it's to not like... avoidable. What am I doing? Anyway, yeah, that's how I, mean... I watched it. If people want to check it out, I recommend it. RoboCop, cool movie. Cool. That's yeah. all. Kirk, what about you? What's your one more thing? 
I watched a cool movie too. It's a movie called Cocaine Bear, and you'll never <laughs> guess what it's about. <laughs> is this? Uh, as soon as I saw that name and the trailer and everything about it, I was like, "This is like them trying to recreate Snakes on a Plane for like the modern era." <laughs> so, well, Snakes on a Plane is pretty recent. Uh, they're, they're both the modern era. It's not that recent. Um, it was like fifteen years it? ago. Yeah, it's pretty long. Hold ago. on, I'm gonna look this up. <laughs> Snakes on a Plane was seventeen years ago, Kirk. Seventeen. Wow, okay. 17 Time years flies. ago. <laughs> so it's the same kind of idea, yes. Uh, but I would say a much more successful film overall and a really good time. So I'm sure everybody listening to this knows Cocaine Bear. Um, I'm not on social media, but I'm guessing that there's a lot of Cocaine Bear on social media. Um, this is based on a true story um, where a guy jumped out of a plane with a bunch of cocaine and then died on impact, or his shoot didn't open, I can't remember. He dropped all the cocaine, and they couldn't find all of it, and then it turned out that a bear ate a bunch of the cocaine and died. That's the true story. Yeah. And the, the filmmakers, um, this is directed by Elizabeth Banks, the wonderful comedic actress who now directs films. She directed, I think, Pitch Perfect 3 as well, but was the star of so many. Mm-hmm. You've seen her in everything. She's great. Um, she directed great this. And the question this movie asks is basically like, well, we know the bear died. We don't know what happened. Um before in between, then. before then, and also maybe the bear didn't die. And it sort of <laughs> what would happen if the bear was an apex predator on cocaine? Right, and um, and cocaine just turned a bear into a superpowered bear, which is basically the premise for this extremely, extremely silly sort of comedy slasher, you know, animal attack movie along the lines of yes, Sharknado or Deep Blue mm-hmm. Sea or um, Snakes on a Plane, though. I watched Snakes on a Plane, I mean, it was a long time ago. Evidently, it was 17 years ago. And I remember thinking, this sucks. Like, this movie is nowhere near as good as the premise. This whole thing just feels like a bit that shouldn't have been made. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of slapdash and not very satisfying. This movie is really entertaining. Um, I went and saw it with some friends. Uh, Emily and I went to the theater. If you can see this in a rowdy theater full of people... It's really fun because everyone is reacting and because the movie is very much designed to be viewed that way. It's super funny. It's super silly. It'll be gross and ridiculous. And it's just, it's very, very funny. But um, it's also just a better put together movie. Like there's a, there's real work put into the special effects of the bear. They really kind of did it. The bear looks amazing and all the scenes with the bear are great. There's one set piece in particular that involves Margot Martindale in an ambulance with the bear chasing the ambulance and a bunch of people. That's the, it's the, the movie kind of peaks early. It's definitely the peak of the movie, but it's <laughs> awesome. And it had just been a long time since I'd been in the theater for that kind of like, whoa, oh, oh, like everyone yelling and like laughing and cheering. And that alone was was really fun. Uh, is it really, you say it peaks early. Does it really sustain across an entire movie? It feels like it should be a 20 minute sketch. <laughs> it, well, it's a 90 minute movie. Yes, it okay. does. Um, it's okay. a 90 minute movie. I wish that the climactic scene had been as great as the mid film ambulance set piece so it was like that was a little like ah if if only they had had the climactic scene be just as audacious and ridiculous but yeah no of course it's a 90 minute movie you're sitting in a theater you're having a beer it it flies by it's great it's like the opposite of you know a three-hour academy award nominated whatever drama (laughs) like it's it's very much that kind of thing and it's just funny to think i the minute I heard about the movie and started talking about it with friends, I was like, this movie is going to destroy at the box office. Mm-hmm. It did. It had a killer opening weekend. I bet this coming weekend, there's a lot of people like me out there telling their friends, hey, if you want to have a good time, go see Cocaine Bear in the theaters. And it just seems like as much as the James Camerons and the Tom Cruises of the world are like, come to the theater for our big, amazing, impressive things, and as impressive as Top Gun and Avatar are, 
a big draw is actually a movie like this or a movie like Megan earlier mm-hmm. this year. These kind of silly, comedic, gross I out. should note, we saw Megan a couple days ago and that was part of why I watched Robocop because I was just on that robot action movie mm, kick. But Robocop's sure, a sure. lot smarter than Megan. Megan's really fun, though. I will say that. When it would, I, and I, Yeah, we're going <laughs> to watch Megan, too. And I you bet it would have been fun to see in theaters. Also, Ray yeah. Liotta's last film, Cocaine Bear. Worth wow. Wow. Yes. Um, yeah, they, they, it's a, a funny, a funny performance and of course a fitting role. Anyways, it's a funny movie. It's, it's a good time. I'm sure everyone already knows about it, but I just wanted to kind of co-sign seeing it in theaters because uh, there, there are worse things you could do with a Friday evening. Co- Cocaine Bear also could have been the title of Ray Liotta's most famous role, Goodfellas. It could have just been called Cocaine Bear. <laughs> <laughs> this really is kind of a Goodfellas sequel. It that's technically close. maybe actually could be based on the character he's playing. Unclear. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> anyway. Um, cool. My one more thing is a book. Uh, I, I read books while you uh, you guys watch I just, movies. I don't have time. Such I, a need, sophisticated I need flashy man. images on screen. Mm-hmm. That's it. I just need cocaine and <laughs> cyborgs. And That's robots me and Maddie. shooting people's arms. <laughs> All I do blood. really is play Switch, play Action Path Traveler 2 on the Switch. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I don't read books. No, I'm reading a book. Um, it's really, really cool. It's called Tracers in the Dark by Andy Greenberg. Andy Greenberg is a reporter for Wired, um, I think formerly of Forbes. And this book is about um, these kind of people whose job or who have spent the past few years tracing down criminals in the crypto world, in the cryptocurrency world. For example, um, the Silk Road drug network, the people who traced down the guy who was behind it, this guy who went by Mm. the moniker Dread Pirate Roberts from Princess Bride. Um, and uh, uh, the book is all about like how they did it, and we meet some of these characters who did it, these people who are like into solving the puzzle of cryptocurrency and figuring out um, how you trace it, how you trace the blockchain. Um, one of the characters he introduces early on is actually the person who like helped co-lead this research paper on how blockchain um, and Bitcoin is not, or Bitcoin specifically is not actually anonymous and how you can trace da- trace back mm-hmm. like who, where the address came from and all the, you can't find like their name or personal details or anything. You can use that information combined with other information to potentially yep. trace people um, and how, how many like uh, crimes that helped uncover. And it's really, really interesting um, because so much of it is just like fascinating behind the scenes stuff. There's a whole section about this like corrupt FBI agent who himself just like wound up like on the take for cryptocurrency stuff and like wound up using his position to exhort uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts um, and the Silk Road and like get money out of them and really just fascinating stuff and mm. it sounds like they needed robocop in this scenario they did yeah. they need well they need crypto <laughs> crypto cop um maddie if crypto you were titling cop. the book you could Kill call it crypto crypto cop <laughs> or you could call it cocaine crypto cop cocaine yes, crypto it's fine. um robocop five he does some cocaine and then trucks down some bear? crypto bros yeah. i don't know we'll make it work um and i think the the real thing to worth to to note here is that it's just written extremely well and good writing can really just carry you through a nonfiction story um, no matter what. And this book is really, really good at that. Um, It reads like a great thriller or something like that. It just has a good, it's just extremely readable. Um, And so I really enjoyed it. Um, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm really enjoying what I'm reading so far. Um, Once again, called Tracers in the Dark by Andy Greenberg. And that is it for this week's episode. Um, So, Kirk, Maddie, are you guys going to, after we finish recording this, are you going into flow mode or thought mode? What are you thinking? I think I'm going to go do some 
because I'm going to eat dinner, mm-hmm. which I would say is flow. Yeah, mode. I was going to say, I think I'm going to give some thought to what to have for dinner and then flow my way to the kitchen. Uh, I'm going to go edit design. this episode, which is pure flow mode. No mm-hmm. thought required. Mm-hmm. Just That's total fair. flow. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> All right, yep. guys. I will see you both next week. Yeah, see you both next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.